Dude, we are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and not sure this is a great idea. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. I'm your host Conrad and also I'm joined by my other co-host Will. Hello. And today is the General Election Debate Special and we are joined by two special guests who are representing each of the main two parties. So um, we'll start with Emily. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm, I'm Emily Hewitson. I'm 19. I'm a Conservative Party activist and an avid Brexiteer. And also we are joined by George. Hello there, my name's George Aylert. I'm a PhD student at the University of Leeds and I'm a solid socialist and I'm looking forward to today. It's going to be good. <laughs> uh, so to begin with, the first topic that we're going to tackle is one that has dominated the campaign and it's Brexit. So the first question that we have for both of you is how will your party resolve Brexit? Um, <laughs> so I think the big thing that Boris has over Corbyn is a very clear plan on Brexit. I mean, he's got a deal that that has shown to be able to get through Parliament and every single one of the Conservative candidates this time round has agreed to back the deal. Then you have Corbyn, on the other hand, who has basically committed to staying neutral in a second referendum so he would not even be supporting his own deal which is absolutely absurd and i think throughout the whole country there is this kind of you know want to get brexit over and done with and the quickest way to do that is to support boris and support his deal because then we can finally deliver on the biggest mandate of all time in british politics george would you like to respond Absolutely. So Labour's position is to organise and negotiate a credible leave deal within three months and then within six months put that deal to a referendum versus Remain. Now, anyone that's saying that that position is not clear, you know, it is very clear. It can be summed up in just a few sentences. And, you know, anyone who knows me, I've been very critical of the idea of a second referendum. But whilst Northern Ireland is part of the UK, I actually want a deal that has a customs union. So that can only happen with a Labour government who want to negotiate that. So that's a pill I'm willing to swallow in order to get that deal. And a Labour deal would protect the economy, protect the NHS, protect workers' rights, protect environmental rights. And a customs union deal would also respect the Good Friday Agreement. And I think that deal currently on offer is significantly better than the Boris Johnson deal. And the problem with Boris Johnson's deal isn't necessarily with the withdrawal agreement in itself. That's not actually that bad. The, the, the three reasons why Johnson's deal is not great. Firstly, the political declaration is absolute trash. The fact that we'll have to maintain EU state aid rules, uh, despite not being members of the single market, I think is a little bit absurd. Secondly, I think it would take around seven years to fully implement and finalise agreements. That's how long it took with Canada. And I think it would be the same with the United Kingdom as well. And finally, I think Boris Johnson is going to use Brexit as a way to sort of de-align ourselves with Europe and move ourselves towards the United States of America. And I'm absolutely terrified of what might happen to the NHS in any trade deal uh, with post-Brexit Britain. So I think the problem in itself is Boris Johnson and the deal there. But I think there is a credible alternative and we can actually get Brexit done within six months with the Labour government. I think that would be better for all of us. Now, um, we, you've already kind of touched on it there, George, but um, the next sort of bit on this is what kind of trading relationship with your party pursue with the EU? And 
Um, so what oh you said george didn't you that's all right sorry go on (laughs) that's all right don't worry don't worry it's all right so what labor want is to have a customs union so you know the the consequence of that means no independent trade policy but you might be able to have some sort of sway you know on the sideline and obviously the sixth richest nation on earth i don't think people are just going to ignore that but the whole point of a customs union is to protect the good friday agreement and the situation in Northern Ireland. Now, if it was a situation where Northern Ireland was no part, longer part of the union, which may happen in the next few decades, then I think we can have a different discussion about uh, the customs union. But it is an absolutely necessary compromise in order to, you know, maintain that peace within Northern Ireland. So, you know, having a trade policy negotiated by the European Union, I think it's it's fine to pursue in order to have peace in Northern Ireland at the same time. But, you know, if the situation was different, then who knows? But a customs union, I think, should be on the table and it's what we need to pursue. Well, the first so, thing... Emily, oh, sorry, yeah. go on. How do you sort of tackle um, it? So the first thing that I'd like to definitely pick up on that you said is that you said that Labour's, you know, could get us out in six months. Well, Boris Johnson, with this ready-to-go deal, could get us out in six weeks. It's completely absurd to try and argue that Labour's this quick fix to the problem. And the other big issue, of course, is that the EU are saying that they don't want to renegotiate a deal. They're happy with the one that they got. And, you know, a lot of the member states are getting very frustrated with the ongoing process and they just want to get it done. In terms of the sort of deal that we're looking for, I mean, Boris Johnson has made it very clear that he wants sort of a Canada-style arrangement. And the most important thing, I think, as a Brexiteer here is that he does not want any political alignment. And I think that is incredibly important. I mean, important. I, th- I mean, the EU worked when it was simply a trading bloc, but it's become a lot more than that. It's become so politicised. You know, why, why on earth does it need, you know, a national anthem? It's not a nation. And um, you, you also say that we're trying to de-align ourselves from the EU. But how I see it is that we're aligning ourselves with the whole world equally. And I think it's very unfair in many ways that, for example, with freedom of movement, that uh, EU citizens get priority over the rest of the world. I I believe in, you know, equality of opportunity. And I think uh, leaving the EU will actually bring that for, you know, all immigrants rather than just prioritising those uh, that live within the EU. Do you want to expand free movement of people then? Because that's surely the sensible option. No, no, absolutely not. I think I think um, part of leaving the EU is to have a level of control over our borders. And I think the most feasible, realistic, and pragmatic solution is um, an immigrant uh, in, is a uh, points-based system where we can, you know, get in the workers that we need. And I think that's the fairest way to put everyone on the same. Uh, like on a level field uh, a level field and instead of prioritizing eu citizens you know give, giving eu citizens priority just because of their nationality it's absolutely absurd we get called xenophobic for you know wanting um, wanting control over our borders but i think it's rather than xenophobic to say oh if you're an eu national then it's easier for you to come to the uk solution to that is to expand free movement of people so you it's give that feasible. right to more people from no of course it's feasible it's absolutely the problem with can i just interject a moment go on, George. Go i'd on just well. like um to ask uh regarding uh free movement do you think that this is something that the labor manifesto is in favor of free movement of people uh you know in the manifesto is talking about defending 
uh, a free movement. But I think, you know, the motion that passed at Labour conference, which passed unanimously, was to fight to defend the current free movement that we have and expand it beyond the EU. Because the thing is, I, I, I'm personally in support of that. I used to be against free movement for people, but now I'm solidly for expanding it. Because the reason why is, is that ending free movement only ends free movement for the working class. The richest across the world will be able to move from A to B whenever they want. And they can do that whenever they want. The problem is if you shut that down, it shuts it down for the working class across the world. And I don't think that's appropriate. I think we should be expanding free movement of people. And I think that's absolutely right to do. But there is a point I need to make earlier about uh, the efficiency of a Boris Johnson Brexit. You say this will be finished in 15 days or so, or six weeks, as you said. It won't be. The Canada-style agreements, it took seven years to finalise. I don't think that's appropriate at all. And also as well, the European Union, Leo Varadkar has said that the European Union are open to a Corbyn uh, negotiated deal where you have a customs union. The idea that this is off the table is absolute nonsense. And I think to sort this issue out in six months where we can have that public debate, and I'll be making the case for a customs union Brexit. I hope you'd be joining as well, Emily, um, in that referendum. Um, but I think that's, this needs to happen and I'm looking forward to it. I won't be joining because there won't be one. Well, we'll wait and see in 15 days, won't we? <laughs> well, yeah, we will. We will indeed. <laughs> now, um, there's been a, obviously Brexit has been a big issue in the election, but um, there are also other issues in this election that people might have forgotten really? about. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. So the next sort of segment of the um, debate is um, on public services. Um, now, the first question in this part is... If your party won the election, how would they ensure the NHS was funded into the future? Um, so we we'll start with Emily for this one. Well, I think it's uh, very, very, very crucial for the security of our democracy to make it fundamentally clear that the Conservatives do not want to privatise the NHS. There is absolutely no evidence, as much as Corbyn keeps drilling it into people, and what's scary is people are actually believing it. I see tweets all the time like, do you want a USA-like uh, health system and they get millions and millions of you know interactions and retweets and it's very very damaging for Labour to be feeding this false news and I think it's also important to look at the Conservatives record on the NHS if they really wanted to privatise it then they would have done so in the last last nine years of government in fact 84% of private finance initiatives within the NHS projects were started by Labour and um, NHS spending has gone up every single year in real terms under the Conservative government. So the idea that they want to privatise it is absolutely nonsense. And I think that it is so important to emphasise that point. Right. Let's actually do look at the Conservatives record on the NHS. That'd yes. be fantastic. Yes. So you talk about funding. It's 1.1% increase rather than historically around 3%. We've got the longest waiting times in history right now. We do have creeping privatisation and the 2012 Health and Social Care Act helped cause that privatisation and the expanding uh, market within the NHS. Chronic underfunding as well. That is not enough 1.1%. It needs to be much higher than that. And Jeremy Corbyn was right this morning to show the country the redacted documents where the UK has had six secret meetings with the United States. What does Boris Johnson have to hide? He's, he is going to sell off our NHS, and I'm absolutely terrified. This is not a game anymore. I, just thought, I think this I, election... George, George, if I could just hold on. This you. election... Go on. I was just, I was just going to say <laughs> that regarding documentation, I think it is fair to say 
that in the documentation there isn't anything specifically about selling off the National Health Service. Just to be completely fair, in case any of our listeners haven't heard or haven't read uh, the reports, so the, ca- the, the claim is perhaps that, you know, we'll be selling off the NHS is perhaps not included in those documentations. Please, go ahead. Six secret meetings, you know, it's 584 pages or so. I'm not expecting all of your listeners to have read it within a few hours on that, of course. But, you know, I am absolutely terrified about the future of NHS under the Conservatives, as we've seen under, over the last nine years and their poor voting record. So what Jeremy Corbyn wants to do, he wants to invest £26 billion more into the NHS. And Emily, you made the point about PFI. Thank goodness we had politicians like Jeremy Corbyn at the time saying that PFI was a bad idea. And now the Labour Party wants to set up a fund to deal with PFI debt, which is absolutely important. But if anyone's going to be trusted with the NHS, it's not the Conservative Party. They've got to be out of power. We need that Labour government. We I'm really very, do. Sorry. I'm very glad that you actually brought up the documentation that Corbyn published today. I mean, we all know it was a big PR stunt. It was intended to be published at the end of an election to be like a big blow. But after that car crash interview with Andrew Neil last night, where basically the extent of anti-Semitism and the way that Corbyn would not apologise was completely exposed, <laughs> he thought... I know the perfect solution. I will claim once again in in a completely false way that the Conservatives want to sell off the NHS. So let's have a look at a page from that document. Page 53. We do not currently believe the US have a major offensive interest in health insurance space. And the overall picture that was made out in this documentation was basically that the US wants to continue their existing market access but have no interest in expanding it further. So basically all the claims that this this is a big a big uh, kind of exposure of the Conservative Party about how they are secretly selling off the NHS is completely blown out of the water and it is a lie. It is propaganda and it is not true. If I might just come in, if I might just come in for a moment, sorry, Josh. I just I, I just think it's important regarding what Emily has just said. But isn't it also true, Emily, that one of the things that was discussed was the possibility of well, it wasn't ex- um, it wasn't exempted from the documentation, the possibility of raising the prices of drugs. Now, would, how would that benefit people in the United Kingdom who need these drugs if the drugs are at the hands of American corporations that could raise them to an extent where these life-saving drugs are out of the hands of ordinary people? Right, so this is a different point at hand. The point that Labour was trying to raise was fact that which is completely not true as i really really want to emphasize that the that this proves that the conservatives are trying to sell off the nhs that is not true this point however of course needs to be looked at um obviously it's not it's not great i'm not going to you know like weigh it up to be this fantastic thing that is absolutely not the case but that is not the same even even if it was completely true and it happened that is not the same as the conservatives selling off the nhs it is just completely different and also i think it's important to me- to mention that trump himself has said he's got no interest in uh, sort of buying parts of the nhs um so for trump the us he said it has to be on the table well well he said on lbc more in a more recent interview interview with nigel farage that um he has no interest and he wants to focus on us healthcare and it won't be on the table so i guess i guess it depends which which word but personally i'm going to take the more recent one backed up by this document 
I don't trust Donald Trump. Shock horror. I don't think many people in Britain actually trust Donald Trump, actually. And I think many, even in the Conservative Party, don't trust Donald Trump. But, Will, your point was really interesting. And I think, you know, about drug pricing, etc. I do think, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn announced at Labour conference that we'd be setting up a state pharmaceutical company, I think that was such an important thing to do. I think, you know, rather than having multinational corporations having so much control over you know drugs and drug prices etc and you know people who are suffering from horrible conditions who might not be able to afford to to deal with it and because oh what was it what was that drug in the united states of america uh it's cheaper to go to canada and back in order to get it anyway bernie sanders made a big deal out of it i think having a state pharmaceutical company to deal with this is going to be so important and actually abolishing prescription charges as well it's going to make such a difference to so many people and you know that is the positive alternative you know 26 billion pound more for the nhs a state pharmaceutical company and scrapping prescription uh, charges as well as scrapping nhs parking charges as well i think they're all positive compare that to the last nine years longest waiting times in history creeping privatization and chronic underfunding you know that's the choice on december the 12th for the nhs and you know i'm i'm really looking forward to make that case over the next two weeks or so can I quickly just also mention that Boris has, of course, made pledges to benefit the NHS. I just think it's important, as it ha- actually hasn't been mentioned yet. For example, the 50,000 more nurse- nurses and also providing bursaries towards that to help, you know, attract attract students into the nursing profession. Bursaries that they scrapped? Pardon? The, the bursaries, the bursaries that they scrapped. That they well, yeah, yeah. Well, well, but this is the point. Now our economy is thriving and a lot stronger than it was before. We are able to offer incentives like that because we have, because of economic uh, fiscal strategies that the Conservatives have implemented. It's uh, tripled since twenty since twenty ten, is it not? What was that? Sorry, you cut off. The debt. The debt has tripled since twenty ten, has it not? What's tripled? The debt. Did you say? Oh, the debt. Well, we've cut the deficit, but as long as the deficit remains, then debt continues to increase. So they were supposed to end it in 2015. The The only way to cut the deficit is more austerity, which which, because we've got more. If I can just, we're going to be discussing the economy later. I would um, prefer if we uh, stayed on uh, (laughs) public services at the moment. And I'd both like to ask you, people are very concerned about crime. How would your party keep people safe? George, if you would like to begin. Well, the Labour Party, you know, we've condemned cuts to the police since 2010. And obviously we've seen 21 fewer police officers on our streets. And, uh, you know, the Labour Party are pledging 20,000 more police officers, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. We said that in 2017. We're saying it now. And, you know, crime, dealing with crime is so important. You know, I was uh, talking to somebody uh, just the other day who was talking about the situation in Athens and had the lack of police there has caused a lot of uncertainty and chaos in many areas. And I think it's absolutely important that, uh, you know, we have enough resources on our streets to deal with this, but not just that as well. I think we've got to deal with the sort of underlying causes of, of crime too. So I think uh, cutting youth centre, youth facilities have had such an impact on, on communities and people have no places to go, you know, many people will go to the streets and do crime and that that's not good at all and i think in order to deal with that you've actually got to invest in communities invest in youth facilities etc so i think that's really really important and you know i do hope we have a wider debate about broader public services as well but um you know over the last nine years we've seen 
you know, disaster with, uh, you know, police funding and youth centre funding. And um, the fact that Conservatives may make the case that uh, they're going to solve this problem with around £3 billion a year is, is not enough. We've got to have long-term investment in communities and, you know, I just don't trust them. Um, well, to come back on that, I think obviously the, the big pledge to do with crime is the 20,000 police officers, which, of course, will be seen uh, as beneficial across the whole country. But what I want to get onto as well is obviously we've got a very tough on crime Home Secretary, Secretary in Pretty Patel who has pledged for longer prison sentences with a particular focus for those to assault the police, etc, etc. And I think that kind of toughening down on criminals is a really great way forward. But on the issue of kind of national security and national safety, I do not think the nation is safe in Jeremy Corbyn's hands. For example, when asked what he would do if he was in the situation um, with the former ISIS leader, he said he would opt to arrest him. The guy was wearing a suicide bomb vest. How, how can we trust a prime minister that would not even use lethal force against someone who has killed and destroyed the lives of thousands and thousands of people. It's just absurd. The Conservatives I mean, have always been the party of law and order, and I think that is, that is something that Boris will continue. Evidently not international law, though. You know, I think you, international law does need to be followed. And I think where possible, where you can arrest somebody, you've got to try and do that. And obviously, it's got to be done case by case. But, you know, I, I would rather put people on trial if you can do so than, than do that. And I think we shouldn't be willy-nilly with, you know, airstrikes and whatnot. But, you know, the point about national security as well. I think, you know, I think you're making the case that Jeremy Corbyn is a threat to national security. It's absolute nonsense. You know, the army right now under the Conservatives is at a dangerously low level. I think I think a senior general said at one point, if the army gets below 74,000 or 78,000 people, then it's real cause for concern. And right now we're near about that level. And, you know, I just, I do not trust the Conservatives on national security when they have implemented austerity all over, all over the country, in all sectors of the the country, including defence as well. And that, that's not appropriate. And, you know, the idea the idea that a politician as well can just so flippantly say that they would use a nuclear weapon is, is so shocking. And I know Jo Swinson got a lot of grief for saying that she would use a nuclear weapon straight away. You know, I think... I, I, I'm really, really concerned about about that. And I do hope the country and the Labour Party actually has does have a debate about nuclear weapons again, because for the first time in British history, we're seeing polling now that more people want to abolish nuclear weapons than keep them, 41% to 40 So not that long. That was a YouGov a couple of months ago. So I do think we need a public debate on that. Shall I That's not public yeah, services. Yeah, um, uh, yeah sorry. Go on. Go on. Um, well, I think I think the kind of uh, big issue here is Corbyn wasn't in favour of renewing Trident. To kind of imply that he is not a threat to national uh, security is is absolutely ridiculous. Jeremy Corbyn's solution to every world problem is dialect and just to talk it out. And I mean, we've seen that when he's called people like Hezbollah his friends. It's like it is absolutely shocking. One of the biggest the biggest enemies of our country he describes as friends it's absolutely shocking and um i think i think i think prime ministers should be prepared to use a nuclear weapon as a last resort of course they should not be used uh willy-nilly but even the fact of having one 
makes me and I think most British citizens feel more secure, even if it's never used, just in case we were in that situation. And it's also used as a deterrent against um, other nations. So I am definitely in favour for the retention of nuclear weapons. And I think everyone else should be as well. Well, the country for the first time ever, according to the, that that poll, 41% want to abolish nuclear weapons, 40% want to keep it. And I think, I do think personally, it's not the Labour position to, to scrap Trident, but I do believe that Trident should be scrapped. Cool I think it's a waste of money. Well, I, I, I would love that. I would love that to be in the Labour manifesto, but it's not. I would love that it to okay. be. And I do hope the Labour Party have a discussion about this because we can win the argument on bit even people within the conservative party michael patillo and dan if hannon I, if I can they said that trident was a waste of money for, george if i could just interrupt for a moment um we've moved slightly mm-hmm. on from the police i would like just uh to return uh, to the original question just for a moment mm-hmm. uh, based on something that emily said uh earlier about uh, the conservatives and the police i'm interested in what you're saying that the uh, uh police would be um i think i think you said something about that they more investment other than the conservatives but i was looking at the conservative manifesto today brexit is mentioned 61 times in the manifesto the phrase get brexit done is mentioned 23 times <laughs> knife crime is only mentioned once so my question is if your party is really serious about tackling for example knife crime which mm. is one of the biggest mm. uh, yeah. s- seen spiked up recently why isn't there more mention of it in the manifesto um, well, I think obviously the the big talking point for the whole country, whether you like it or not, at this election is Brexit. And I think that's a place where Corbyn is extremely weak and shows no leadership whatsoever. So, and of course, you've got got Joe Swinson, where either even Remainers think her idea to completely ignore the people's vote, not even have another one, is absurd. So I think that kind of explains the big emphasis. But of course, knife crime is incredibly important far more important than Brexit. Um, but but what I would say on the issue is that the Conservatives have always been in favour of things such as more stop and search powers for the police, which Labour have often opposed. Um, so I think, I think the Conservatives will always be the party of uh, law and order. Another example is how Labour were against the knocking down of of criminals that are on motorbikes by police cars, whereas the Conservatives were, you know, put, put their put their uh, force behind the police force. Um, and again, the Labour Labour showed not to stand with the, with the police on that issue. And I think the Conservatives are the one that are the party of law and order, and that is something that Labour have consistently shown that they're not. And they want to please. give criminals the power instead of the police. What? What? No, what? Blimey. Um, I mean, Emily, I've got a question. Yes. Um, do you think cutting 21,000 police officers and 760 youth centres has helped deal with knife crime, yes or no? No, I do not. But the reason that it had to be cut was because the economy was in such a dire state. And now, oh with, now with this investment, we are going back to the same levels that we had before um, back in the Labour government. So we, we are basically, now we've got that good economy behind us. We can reinvest in our police force. Uh, we will talk about the economy later, and I'm looking yes. forward to that. Um, but I mean, yes, that, that's going to be very good. But you know, knife crime—you know, hundreds of families' lives have been ruined by this. And Absolutely. 21 like people. If you go back, if you say to a family, you said, "Oh, what you just said right now," I think that's not enough. It's a mistake that they cut 21,000 police officers and 760 youth centres. The damage has been done to so many people already, and that's heartbreaking for so many. Absolutely, it's so heartbreaking. But let's remember that knife crime has plummeted 
um, under Labour's Labour's Mayor of Khan in London. What are the statistics there then? What are the statistics there? What are the numbers? Um, I actually don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it, it is a fact that knife crime has risen under Khan. Numbers though. What are the numbers? Do you want me to, do you want me to find them? Please, please. And whilst we're on it, I, I do think we should talk about other public services as well. And I'm sure Will yeah, is probably yeah, moving yeah, yeah. on to that or like yeah, nudging yeah. us onto that. Yeah, go on, Will. I was just about to uh, ask, given that education is something that is absolutely vital to the country, what would yes. your two parties uh, do with, edu- with the education system? How would they improve the education system? Emily, if you could uh, start on that. Okay. So I think... So, obviously, with the Conservative Party, we are investing back into our schools. We can do that because, like I said before, we've built our economy back into a stage where that is possible. And the other thing we are doing is we're also empowering um, apprentices. For example, cutting national insurance for apprentices that are under 23. And we're showing that university isn't the only route and there are other options um, that should be accessible to all. We agree. That would be, yes, of course, half of young people don't actually go to university, they go on to either full-time work or apprenticeships, etc. And I think it's absolutely important that we invest in that. But also those who do make the option to go to university, you know, the abolition of tuition fees, I think is such a good and promising policy. I mean, it make a huge difference to me personally as a PhD student. So I currently get 25.7K over three years. Half of that goes straight on fees, half of that goes straight on rent. And I've got to work alongside that in order to get food, etc. You know, abolishing tuition fees would make such a huge difference, not only to PhD students, but also other postgraduate students and undergraduate students. I, I think the idea of an education system from cradle to grave, free at the point of use, I think is absolutely important. I think it's so much better to have that than a bureaucratic system like Student Finance England. And I think anyone who has Student Finance England who has to go through that bureaucratic mess, you know, they realised how shambolic it can be. But, um, you know, I think the idea of a cradle to grade education system, not only having uh, more hours for free childcare, more investment in primary schools, secondary schools, and universities, and of course, vocational education, that's so important. But the differences between Labour and the Conservatives is that the Conservatives over the last nine years have cut education massively. I was just out in Leeds Northwest today, and there was the statistic. I do want to to fact check this, but you know, pupil funding, funding pool has gone down significantly in Leeds Northwest, and it's gone down everywhere across the country as well. So I don't trust the Conservatives to deliver that. When we had the last Labour government, which did many things right on public services. In fact, that is where the Labour government's excelled on public services. We saw record investment in education, and I think we need record investment again. Well, it's all a great investing, but what happens when the money runs out, which it did under the last Labour government? Anyway, I just want to pick up on your point of um, of student fees. Uh, well, well, I mean, the Chancellor was left a note saying there is no money left, so take of that what you will. Any, any, sorry, anyway. So, of course, let's talk about Conservative policies, 400 million in into education for 16 to 19 year olds. And the other point that I would want to make is about tuition fees. Um, I think it is very dangerous to keep emphasising that tuition fees um, are impossible to pay back or the student loans impossible to pay back because it is putting 
less advantaged people that are capable to go to university off from going. And it's a very dangerous rhetoric. You do not have to start paying it back until you are on 23,000. And most people do not even end up paying it back. So I think it is a very, very dangerous road to go down. And in terms of students generally, I think um, Labour are doing some policies that would massively affect students in a negative way. For example, the £10 minimum, minimum wage or zero hour contract. Students, while studying at university, often like to get jobs, for example. Zero hour contract suits students far more. I mean, I've benefited from it. I know many of my friends have. Um, so I think it is very kind of important to emphasise the, the fact that zero hour contracts are very good for students. And the other thing that I'd like to say is clearly the conservative education system is working because unemployment has gone massively down. 3.5 million people, uh, more people are in jobs since uh, 2010. And on top of that, unemployment for young people has halved. If that doesn't show that the conservative education and employment system is working, I don't know what does. Because they changed the definition of what employment is. Mm. I believe it's around one hour a week is what they changed the definition for employment for. And, you know, that's absurd. Technically, I was employed and I am employed uh, at the moment, but I'm not. I'm literally doing a bit of part time work alongside well, you uh, you know, my studies. And the, hold on, hold on. Yeah but, yeah, but, yeah, but the idea, the idea that I would count towards the national statistics that I'm in, you know, when you talk about unemployment, you make it sound like secure jobs for everyone. Obviously not for me, you know, it's just part-time work alongside my studies. I, I don't want to be part of that statistic there. Hold on. If I might just be able to interrupt a moment, it's just relating to your <laughs> point. Uh, would you suggest mm -hmm. then, George, that Labour's argument is more mm. about the quality of work rather than a prescript time to classify as work? Well, I think I don't think it's a binary choice there. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that choice. And, uh, you know, I think it's about, if you were talking about employment or unemployment figures i would normally think about that as full-time work alongside whatever but th there are a few points i do want to pick back on 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 emily actually because i think you know the idea that students would be the worst off a labor as under a labor government i think is one of the most absurd things that i've heard uh, today you know restoring student grants i was one of the last few students to actually get student grants and it made such a huge uh, difference for me you know, getting that money unconditionally that I could spend on rent and food, etc. That made such a huge difference to me. And abolishing tuition fees for a PhD student would make a world of difference. And, you know, it is it's all and you talk about, you know, most people not paying it back. I think it's around 74 percent. Well, if most people aren't paying it back, then what's the point of having this bureaucratic system when we could just have universal education? I think that would be a lot better. And a £10 living wage for all workers, the idea that you think that someone having a job on £10 living wage, whether they're 16 or my age, 24, as a PhD student, that they would be worse off, I think that's absolutely yeah, absurd. Would, we need to have higher is, wages. Um, why, why would, be, why would people... About the higher wages. I'll make two points, if, if I may. Um, first, first of all, higher wages means everything else will just go up in price. So it completely defeats the, defeats the point. And secondly, if, every, if everyone for the same job is paid the same, so for example, um, a shelf stacker at a supermarket, if a 16-year-old is paid the same as a 40-year-old, then inevitably, if, if an employer is looking at these two candidates and one's 40 and one's 60, who are they going to give the job to? If they're both on the same if they're both, you know, being offered the same wage, who are they going to give the job to? 
the Conservatives were the party of aspiration, were they not? Why yeah, should yes? What, I thought, thought, thought you were saying that. I mean, that's very, exactly. So get so give so young make people a step up. Give young people a step up. The only way that young people are going to get into jobs is by having a staggered system for wages and not paying them poverty wages. It's not you know, the idea that wages. well, the living wage. The whole point about the living wage is that you have enough to live off, and I think yes. that is absolutely right that we have that. Ten pound an hour by twenty twenty will make life so much better for people. And, and, and if you, if if but I may, please, will go up. if I may, if I may, please, um, Emily, Emily, go please, on. thank you. In work poverty has skyrocketed. Under the last over the last nine years, we've seen food bank use go from tens of thousands to around a million food parcels right now. And that a main factor of that is because in work poverty exists right now. Zero hour contracts use has skyrocketed as well. And that's also contributed to that. It's not good. You cannot have a sustainable economy where you have insecure work and poverty wages. We should all have wages that is enough to survive off. I think that's not controversial opinion, and most people would agree with that. It's time to end poverty pay. It's, it's a disaster. If I, if I may interject just on that, I mean, you've kind of preempted what the next sort of segment was going to be about, a question on jobs, and you've kind of already discussed it. I think you're you're, you're getting ahead of, ahead of us in this stage. But um, <laughs> just um, on the question of sort of jobs and pay, um, I want to go to what Emily's saying about sort of £10 an hour minimum wage. Now, in the Conservative Manifesto, um, there's a promise for a £10.50 minimum wage. Obviously, it's slightly longer time to get there. But um, how do you think this sort of differs from Labour's plan? Well, um, to be honest, I don't like the rhetoric of, of raising the minimum wage. And I'm not really going to defend that because it's something I don't agree with because it is completely pointless. I mean, at least Boris is trying to do it in a more realistic timescale, for example, so it's more sustainable, etc. But I just don't believe in raising the minimum wage. And the reason for that is because it is a pointless process because everything else will just go up. People are earning more. Businesses are going to look upon that and think, you know what, might as well, might as well, you know, put this out for more because people can afford more expensive things. It just does not make any sense to me. And I really don't understand that concept. It's people more complicated not than that, though. Well, not really. It's more so complicated so than so that. No, because... me... no, 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 go on. So, so just a question. So, if if wages go up, do prices of things go up? Yes or no? It's not proportionate that uh, as such. You make it sound like if there's a five percent wage increase, then everything goes up by five percent. You know, it's more nuanced than that. And I think you know that that's obvious. That's very obvious there. But poverty pay should not exist in the sixth richest nation on earth. No one should be using a food bank in the sixth richest nation on earth. And the fact that in work poverty is so high. Is shocking. It is absolutely shocking. If you're in work, you should not be in poverty conditions, especially when you're working for multinational corporations like Amazon, who make tens of billions of pounds. You know, it's absolutely wrong that this can still exist. So, you know, I, I, I find it absolutely absurd. And, you know, Boris Johnson himself calling for a £10.50, uh, you know, living wage, national living wage, uh, quote, national living wage. The Daily Express were saying, oh, my God, that's a fantastic plan. That's going to be so good for millions of workers. And as soon as Labour propose it, the Daily Express are like, oh, they're hard left Marxist scumbags, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to have that. You know, I think the debate around raising wages, I think most people think is a sensible idea. And millions of people being lifted out of poverty pay it's, it's something that's going to appeal to a lot of people. And I hopefully, fingers crossed, many people will vote for the Labour Party to make their lives a lot better. Uh, I think, uh, given that you mentioned Amazon, it would be worth moving on to our next question, which is, 
if your party were to form the next government, how much influence would they seek to have on the economy? And George, I know that Labour's uh, plan is quite different from the Conservatives. So if you would, if you'd like to start on that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we talk about the economy and you've got to have a plan for that. And thank goodness Labour actually have a fully costed manifesto, unlike the Conservative manifesto. We've also seen a hundred. I think the Conservative manifesto has got um, costings this year. Yeah. Oh, does it? Oh, wow. Yeah, this year, this year, 2017, it was. I think this year they have released costings. But do they have the backing of 163 economists? Aha. Uh-huh. So it's 163 economists yesterday came out in favour of Jeremy Corbyn's plan. And I think it's really important to have an economy which is not at the whim of multinational corporations and the richest in society. And I think they need to pay their fair share of tax. So increasing tax on the top 5% of earners is absolutely important to help fund public services and it's having not corporations just the 5%, tax, though. hold on hold on emily you also get a statement as well you also get a statement as well and we'll be able to have that debate but <laughs> we also have corporation tax being raised to 26 percent. personally i think it should be around scandinavian levels but i think that's a very very good start but you know i want to see wealth and power shifted to the workers I want to see wealth and power shifted to workers rather than it being in the hands of multinational corporations and billionaire shareholders. And I think also as well with the economy, I think a lot of planning is needed to help decarbonise our economy. Now, 2050 to decarbonise our economy is way too late. I think we need that green industrial revolution where you pump money into public services, give jobs, 440,000 green jobs, and you would have that you know, state influence, state infrastructure, to help decarbonise our economy, give people jobs and give people good earnings. I think that is something that we should aspire to do. And I don't think over the last nine years where we've seen austerity, austerity and more austerity, you know, that's not sustainable in the long term. But uh, I'm sure Emily will be able to make the case. Okay, so first of all, I just want to point out that you keep going on about inequality within the Conservative government, but actually, it was a, a, in 2015, it was at its lowest level since 1986. Anyway, onto the onto the economy and onto the manifestos. Um, so you say that Labour's manifesto is fully costed, but firstly, the IFS has said that inevitably everyone will have to pay more tax. And second of all, even if it was fully costed, he has now promised an extra, I think it's 58 billion to the waspy women. Where is that money coming from? Corbyn himself has even admitted that he would have to borrow that. So it's completely absurd. And I think the big, most shocking statistic here is that for every one pound that Boris Johnson is spending, Corbyn is pledging to spend 28 pounds. That is absolutely a huge difference. I think Boris, with this manifesto that I've, have supported more than any other Conservative manifesto since I've been interested in politics is it's got the perfect balance between spending and also tax cuts for example a tax cut for 31 million workers I mean you keep talking about empowering workers well what better way to empower the worker than a tax cut for 31 million people by raising the threshold for national insurance and I think I think Boris has you know pledged to invest more into welfareism and the conservative policy in general has always been to have a strong economy to then be able to fund public services and I think that is far more sustainable than just constantly pumping money into public services until eventually that money runs out. 
I mean, that's not how it works. You know, money doesn't just run out. That's not how it works. But I'm so glad you raised the issue of the waspy women. You know, the waspy women, as well as young people, I think are going to be the kingmakers in this election. And, you know, just for people who don't know about this issue. So the coalition government changed the pension age from 60 to 66 with a lack of warning for women born in the 1950s. And waspy women have been hurt, hit so hard by this. And they've struggled financially. Many people have had to sell their homes. Many people have gone into even more financial hardship. But waspy women paid for these pensions. They were robbed by the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. And they are owed it back. And they went to a court case and unfortunately they lost. But I think it's a moral duty to correct this injustice. Now, the costing of that is £11.5 a year over five years. And John McDonnell said that would be paid out of from normal taxation and treated in the same way that if that court case was lost, then we would be treating it in the same way there. Now, you say 11, 11 and a half billion a year over five years is uh, you will bankrupt the economy. I think you tweeted, uh, you know, we spent eight billion pound on no deal preparation, 2.2 billion pound was spent on making up for Chris Grayling's errors as Transport Secretary. One and a half billion pounds on the deal with the DUP and tens of billions of pounds lost due to the uncertainty going around with Brexit. You know, the idea that this is unaffordable, I think that's absolute nonsense. And the point you make about huge increasing in public spending, that's what the country want. We've seen nine years of chronic underfunding and communities left behind. The country needs that money and having over £80 billion in the economy, I think that's just a start. That's a stepping stone. I think hopefully the next Labour manifesto, hopefully 2024 rather than another, another snap election, I hope we will pledge even more funding because, you know, we need radical change right now because we're seeing rising poverty, rising homelessness, rising food bank use. Radical change is needed and public services need money. And I'm so glad Labour are actually having a good manifesto which is fully costed that will invest in public services and i agree investment in public services is great and that's exactly why boris has pledged to do that we've got the economy to a sustainable level where we can you know we can put money into these services but there are some things in his in corbyn's manifesto where i think really is that where your priority is going for example free school meals for all i just can't yeah. justify why someone who is in the lowest tax ban should be paying for someone that comes from a very well-off family's meal when their family would be very comfortable and able to pay for it why can't it just be the most disadvantaged students of course should get a free school meal no one is disputing that but it just seems unjustified that children from families who are very wealthy are being given something that they don't need it's just to me that is an absolute waste of money and that money could be used far far better in other ways well, the richest would be paying more taxes and i think the whole idea of having free school meals for everyone is to end the stigma around having free school meals many people from very you know poor backgrounds are not adopting or having their free school meals because there's a whole stigma behind it having free school meals for everyone you know i think ends that stigma and you have school children from all backgrounds joining together having a meal together i think that's really positive to do rather than have the stigma of a family from a low-income background not taking up a free school meal because, you know, there's many reasons why they might not do that. But the idea that free school meals would, you know, would, ha would be a big damage to the economy is absolute nonsense. But I, I noticed you haven't said anything about the WASPy women. Why oh, sorry, do you yeah. think it's? Why do you think it's unfair? Why do you think it's fair 
that this government can do absolutely nothing about three and a half million people born in the 1950s, three and a half million women born in the 1950s who paid into the system and were robbed by the government and are owed it back. Why do you think Boris Johnson should do nothing about this issue? Um, uh, sorry, I wasn't purposely avoiding the be women question. That's okay. It's just that we That's went okay. on to other stuff. But on that, um, of course, it is an awful situation, a very regrettable situation. And of course, no, no one looked for that to happen. But like you said, at the end of the day, they did lose the court case. And the other thing is, at least Boris Johnson is being honest. Corbyn perhaps should have originally put this into his manifesto, as he says it's such a big issue, which of course it is. But he can't have a fully costed manifesto. And then on top of that, which isn't even fully fully costed, as I said before, as the IFS have pointed out, but then on top of that, pledge another 58 billion. It's just not realistic. At least Boris Johnson is saying, I'm sorry, but this is the truth. This is it in black and white. It is just not. It's just not possible, and it's it's very regrettable that it's not possible. Of, but of course, it's possible. Of course, it's possible. Eleven and a half billion pound. Eleven and a half billion pound a year over five years to actually tackle this injustice, where you have three and a half million people who've been screwed over. I think if they turn out on December the 12th and punish this government for taking, you know, ha having mm. that state inequality, state pension inequality, you know, I think the Conservatives have every right to be punished, not only for, you know, implementing this harsh policy in the first place, but failing to rectify that error that needs to be dealt with. I just like to jump you know, people just... have suffered really hard. George, I understand what you're saying. I'd just like to uh, jump in for a moment. Now, you said that this would be paid through taxation. Were you thinking uh, in general taxation or are you thinking of a specific type of taxation which would pay for this policy. John McDonald said it'd be paid out of normal taxation. Jeremy Corbyn did that interview uh, yesterday. He said maybe borrowing will be involved and, uh, you know, what was it, reserves as well. You know, I don't care how it's funded. We have the moral duty to do it and it needs to be done. And if we lost the court case, it would have to be paid for anyway. And no doubt over the next few days and weeks, we'll have a full plan for uh, the WASPy women uh, funding. But the rest of the Labour manifesto, as we all know, is fully costed. £83 billion. No, it's Every not. single penny has been accounted for. Are you saying oh, 163 economists are wrong here? Are you saying 163 economists are wrong? Are you saying are that wrong? the IFS are wrong? Um, well, there we are. One thing that we haven't, one thing that we haven't talked about that I just really want to talk about because I think it's important and something that's come up a lot. Obviously, Corbyn has emphasised that it'd only be the top five percent that would be paying more income tax, but the key word that is income. Um, they will be. Everyone will be paying more tax. Do you accept that? For example, through things like sugar tax, the marriage tax, etc., and also obviously corporation tax. Do you accept that? Well, the sugar tax the yeah that's income tax of course it is but remember the conservatives they raised vat etc they, they had the sugar tax they had the pasty tax debacle in 2012 and all these things so the idea that conservatives are you know free on this issue as well i think that's absolute nonsense oh, the idea that on. the idea hold on the idea that people under the eighty thousand pound would be significantly worse off under this you know labor government i think is absolute nonsense they would have strong funded public services they would have an nhs which is not on its knees and actually gets the funding it requires you would have free broadband which would be an absolute boost to the economy 59 billion pound according to the center for economic uh, economics and business research you would have a welfare state where you would 
scrap universal credit and actually have a welfare system that works for everyone. Public ownership of rail, mail, water and energy, which could save around £13 billion a year and would pay itself off within seven years. After that, it's pure profit. It's fantastic. This is going to make life better for millions of people. So the idea, the point you're trying to make is completely absurd. You know, the power and wealth be shifted to the working class and working people in Britain under a Labour government. And we haven't seen that over the last nine years. That's only got worse for the working class. How is, how is that the case when they ultimately the working classes in the in the first in the bottom tax band will be paying more in tax so they will be worse off and also under the conservative government there'll be 31 that uh, 31 million pe- workers who will get a tax cut so they will be better off under a conservative government i don't understand how you can argue that they would be worse off when they're no, literally absolutely. having to pay less money no, absolutely not, because public services are crumbling. The NHS is crumbling. When you see people using the NHS and having the longest waiting times in history, I don't think people want that at all. And obviously, uh, ill health has an impact on productivity. If you deal with ill health, if you make people's lives better, if you have better health for workers, that increases productivity, boosts the economy. You know, all these things add up. And, you know, public ownership of rail, mail, water and energy will also have a huge impact. And also free broadband as well. All of these things are going to benefit millions of people rather than a handful of shareholders and billionaires under the Conservatives' plans. I just I just don't buy that. George, if I could just interrupt for a moment. Um, does it Go at on. all worry you that given so much has been centred on the idea of the top 5% paying more tax, that if Labour were to win this general election, that people within that bracket and companies uh, that previously have not paid as much tax, which the Labour Party says that they would want to pay more tax, might leave the United Kingdom for other countries where taxation of that sort isn't in place. Does that worry you at all? It, it doesn't worry me because most people would actually be better off with stronger public services and all these things. They would benefit from an education system that is properly funded because they would have a workforce which goes through an education system with more money and that would have an impact in the long term. They would have, you know, fully funded or better fu- pu- uh, funded transport. So buses and rail under public ownership, that would obviously impact workers, that would impact uh, their businesses and all these things. So I think people, you know, I think one of the most patriotic things you can do is pay your taxes. I think that's so important. And, you know, the idea that wealth, you know, will trickle out under a Labour government, it doesn't, you know, instead of it not trickling down, it will trickle outwards to tax havens. It's doing that already, you know, I think, and, and that, that's a big problem. That, that's a huge problem. And, um, but people will all benefit from stronger public services, a stronger NHS and all these things. So, no, I, I don't worry about that. And they would only benefit from a country that has more investment in infrastructure, etc. I think one of the most patriotic things you could do is actually stand up to the enemies of Britain. But anyway, besides the point, the one last thing that I'd like to <coughs> emphasise is when you talk of things like free broadband, I think that is very dangerous because it is free. It would be free at the point of use. It would be paid for by taxpayers. I just wanted to make that clear. Now, we've had a yes, good conversation on the economy, and I think you've both got your points sort of across very well. You're coming from different sort of worldviews entirely. But um, sort of our final sort of section is on leadership. Now, there's a big sort of choice. Obviously, you're, you're not just electing your MP, you're electing sort of a party to be prime minister and have a prime minister. Um, why do you think that your leader is the best person to be prime minister out of the two likely candidates? Um, start with you, Emily. 
Um, so first of all, I'd like, I think Boris has, which a lot of previous Conservative leaders haven't had, is a liberal attitude. Every, it's, it's ridiculous that people talk of the liberal wing of the Conservative Party is, is being moved away, is being isolated. That is absolutely not the case. We've got a prime minister, a conservative prime minister that stood up for gay rights and was, spoke out in support of gay marriage before it was even popular, voted for the Gender Recognition Act, voted for repeal Section 28, massive on animal welfare. He, he is very, very liberal. And I think that's very exciting. In terms of leadership, Boris Johnson is undoubtedly a leader. I mean, he's proven himself as London mayor and he and he, he just has a way of bringing people together. On the other hand, you've of course got Jeremy Corbyn, who is little more than an activist. I mean, it is genuinely shocking that Jeremy Corbyn could not even win against the worst Conservative leader we've ever had, Theresa May, and he still lost. And I think it's actually frustrating from my point of view, and I'm not even a Labour, obviously I'm not a Labour member. I think what's frustrating from my point of view is it's actually boring when you just have a leader of the opposition that's never going to win and is just so ineffective. So, George, you'd like to come back on why you think Corbyn's <laughs> Sorry. Um, I mean, you know, I think I, I'm glad the Conservatives are being very complacent. They might be in for a shock within two weeks' time. But, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll do my statement on this, of course. You know, there, there's a leader, you know, who I genuinely admire, respect, and I want to see in power. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is someone who shares my values, promoting socialism, ethical foreign policy, workers' rights, public ownership, high wages, strong public services, standing up for young people, protecting elderly people, wanting affordable housing, saving the environment and, uh, you know, tackling social injustices. And he's consistently been on the right side of history from his opposition to the Iraq war, promoting LGBT plus rights for decades when others were silent, opposing austerity and, and so much more. And he's made it clear. He, uh, uh, well, Emily, I will get on to that. And please, we were going to have a, a discussion on that, please. Um, and, and we will discuss this in, in detail. But can I finish my opening statement, if that's OK? Um, he wants to make it clear that we don't want it to live in a society of rough sleeping, food banks and rising poverty. And that there is a genuine alternative. You know, when I'm knocking on doors, I'm seeing people, you know, who've been broken by the coalition government and they want to see an alternative. And, you know, the thing about Jeremy Corbyn is that I genuinely trust him. And trust is so important in politics. And I've met him a few times and he's genuinely one of the nicest people that I've ever met. He genuinely wants to listen to people. Now, he's a different style of leader. I'll give you that. But that's the reason why I like him. Now, compare and contrast that to Boris Johnson, who's a serial liar who only cares about himself. Only one of the two people who are the main leaders of the political parties is fit to be prime minister. And that's Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think it's absolutely shocking that you describe someone who many, many would call an anti-Semite as someone that's fit to be leader. What about the Jewish communities? What about the fact that the chief rabbi has made an unprecedented move of commenting on the election because the anti-Semitism is so rife within the Labour Party? They are not fit to govern. They're supposed to be the party of minority groups. It's absolutely ridiculous. Jeremy no, it, Corbyn it, has not proved himself to win anything throughout his whole career. What makes you think that he could ever win a general election? He's completely unelectable. Right. I, I'm going to make this, and I'd like no, you know, 
interruptions here, please. And of you course, can sorry, have yeah. your long point afterwards. Of course. This is on. so important. And I'm th I think it's absolutely right that we're talking about racism in this debate. And it's mm -hmm. so important that the political parties stand up for minority groups. And now what Labour are doing now, they started off slow, but they're, what they're doing right now is is doing more to stamp out the poison that is anti-Semitism compared to the past. So cases are being dealt with now four times quicker under this general secretary compared to the last general secretary. There have been reforms to internal processes to streamline disciplinary action. And we've adopted political education. You know, I think political education is going to be so important to deal with this. And it's been rolled out to inform people what anti-Semitic tropes are and how to stamp it out. And myself, what I've done, you know, I've called it anti-Semitism in Labour. When I was chair of the whole University Labour Club, I made sure there was a workshop on tackling anti-Semitism and proposed motions condemning anti-Semitism, which passed. I was calling for the adoption of the IHRA definition to be adopted long before other left-wing activists were doing so. And I've used my platform, which I'm very, very lucky to have, to call it out, and I will continue to do so. But if I say, if I can say this, please, being an anti-racist activist means calling out racism wherever you see it, not just when it's politically convenient. And that means calling it out within your own party, as well as other parties and wider society. And I really do re need to raise this with you, Emily, because going through your Twitter on this issue was deeply concerning. You have never condemned anti-Semitism within the Conservative Party from Suella Braverman's comments about cultural Marxism Patel's comments about North London elites and Jacob Rees-Mogg's attack on George Soros, and the total number of tweets you have done about Islam institutional Islamophobia in the Conservative Party is zero. If you are an anti-racist activist, then why haven't you used your platform, which is a large platform, to call out racism within your own party? Okay, so just to respond to that, I have actually retweeted tweets that call for an in investigation into Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. I completely support that. So obviously your search didn't pick up these kind of free tweets. So yeah, fair enough if I hadn't tweeted good, it good. myself, but I have shown shown support. So that, to kind of, you know, imply that I, I'm not in support of an Islamophobia investigation is completely wrong and completely unfair. And you, you've referenced as one of your examples, uh, Pretty Patel's comments. How were they anti-Semitic? I think that is that is so unfair. And so, yeah, sorry, can you just explain how Pretty Patel's comment was anti-Semitic? Because I really don't understand that. Well, many Jewish people were saying it was a dog whistle. North London elites uh, could have been used as a dog whistle. And, you know, there was no clarification or apology on that issue. But what about Suella Braverman's comments? about cultural Marxism and Jacob Rees-Mogg's attack on George Soros. What about them? It would be great if you could condemn them. I condemn, I haven't actually seen the exact quotes that you're, talk, uh, that you're talking about. So if I saw them, then obviously I'd comment okay. on them. But, so, but what I will say is this mm -hmm. kind of whataboutery, like we don't need a political- It's not whataboutery. Anti-Semitism is, yeah. is ripe in the Labour Party. It's far more of a problem within the Labour Party than it is the Conservatives. So it's to kind of like twist this and be like, well, what about the anti-Semitism in the Conservative Party? I didn't say it's, that, it's Emily, quite, well, Emily. That back at I'm me. not having you that. You that back at me. Emily, I, I'm not, Emily, I'm not, I'm, okay, Emily, on, please, sorry. if you allow me to yeah, respond, I did not. It's not what about three, because I've said where I've called it out. I've said what I want done, and there is so much more to be done, and I'll never be silent on that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea that, 
you know, that I have been silent on this. No, I have not. I'm very lucky I'm to have the platform I have. And I will continue to stamp out this poison that is anti-Semitism. And I will continue to do so. But I'm going to call out racism wherever I see it. Now, I did not know that you retweeted comments about that. And I'm so glad you did. And I really, really do hope the Conservatives adopt that and Labour take more action as well. Because yep. that's the point yep. of political parties. But you say, it, 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 it seems that many in the Conservative Party, 79%, are still in denial about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party when 60% of Tory members think Islam is a threat to the West, 45% don't want a Muslim PM and believe the myth of no-go zones, 40% believe there should be a reduction of Muslims entering the United Kingdom, and many members who made Islamophobic comments were allowed to vote in that leadership contest. We've got to call it out. You and I, Emily, and everyone else in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have got to call it out in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, because it's shocking. It is, is, it is a poison that is impacting, you know, political debate. And it's heartbreaking to see minorities feeling so upset and alienated. And, you know, we've got to do our bit. But I think having someone like Boris Johnson, when he made his comments about women in burqas looking like letterboxes and bank robbers, which is shocking, we saw a 375% increase, 375 increase in hate crimes, Islamophobic hate crimes. Now, that is shocking. And I just want to know why you haven't tweeted anything about that. Um, well, the first thing that I'd like to point out is I am one of these people that has criticised Boris Johnson's language time and time again, so you can look at that. But I think it's very important to look at his actions as well. For example, the article that, you're, that you are specifically quoting was actually a defence of Muslim women to be able to wear the burqa. Oh, so no. I think, I think, oh, I think God. It, it was. It was. You can't deny that. I'm, I'm not defending the language, and I, and I think that language is divisive. And Don't I think defend it. And I, I, I'm not defending his language, but I'm saying that article as a fact was. And also, I just want to say, I think it's really, really brave of you that you've actually act, um, spoke out about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Because I've seen myself, when the Labour activists do it, they get dogpiled on and it, it can be very hard. And you can feel isolated from your party in many ways. I've seen it for myself. And so I, I really do commend you for that. Um, the other thing that I will say is that Jeremy Corbyn did not apologise for anti-Semitism in his party. And the fact that we've had that the, the uh, Human Rights and Equality Commission have had to open an investigation into racism in the Labour Party. And the only other party that they investigated before was the British National Party. It's quite shocking that Jeremy Corbyn can't even say sorry. And we saw Barry Gardner get angry at journalists asking about anti-Semitism at the, uh, the, uh, at the um, what do you call it, press conference about the uh, NHS papers. He got angry and said, you're not sticking to the point of this conference, which is just, it's just completely, completely shocking. Um, but I think what you, what you do on anti-Semitism is really brave, and I do commend that. And also, Boris Johnson has today apologised for Islamophobia, and the Conservatives have confirmed that there will be an investigation into it if he is elected as Prime Minister. Or, or there should be, uh, anyway, regardless. Is that, because um, I, I haven't seen that announcement today, can you, can you clarify, is that on having a specific investigation into Islamophobia as suggested by Sayyid Avazi, or is it an investigation into Islamophobia and all forms of racism? What, what, which one is it? I think... But I haven't I'm, seen the announcement today. I'm not actually sure. It was on the Andrew Neil about a couple of hours ago there was a representative from the conservative party that said that there will be an investigation into islamophobia i'm not sure well, that's which of very those it positive. is 
that that's obviously extremely positive. Yeah. And, you know, any party taking any action to do this is so important. And I, I do, you know, thank you for your comments. I mean, you know, it's the duty of everybody in the Labour Party to, to call out racism. And it's the duty of everyone in the Conservative Party to do this. And we've both got to be louder on this. And, um, you know, I, I hope you keep on retweeting and tweeting and, you know, start tweeting about this issue. I think it's really important. And, you know, we've got our duty to stamp out the poison that is racism wherever we see it. And uh, I'm sure we can both agree with that. So let's do it. I'd like to interject at this point and ask if we could um, move on. Uh, the Prime Minister represents the United Kingdom on the world stage. How will your leader approach foreign affairs? George, would you like to start? Absolutely. So I think we've got to have a different approach to foreign policy. I think when you have things like the Iraq war, which was an absolute disaster, and you had somebody on the right side of history then saying the right things now as well. I think we've got to have a foreign policy which, you know, doesn't jump straight to war as the conclusion there, but follows international law and is ethical. And I think, you know, all wars, and we did touch upon this earlier on very briefly, all wars end in political settlement. I think you've got to do that as soon as possible, where possible, in order to get all sides around the negotiating table and end conflicts and come to dialogue. Because dialogue, where possible, is obviously better than having a war where most innocent, where you have innocent civilians who are killed. Uh, I can't remember the, the exact statistic, but the percentage of civilian deaths from war has skyrocketed in the last 100 years. I believe it was around 20% at the start of the century. And now that gets higher and higher with every year that passes. Now, I do want to fact check that. Please do fact check that on there. But, you know, I want to see a world at peace, not at war. And I think having Britain leading the way on that, I think would be so important. And I think not jumping to interventionism uh, where possible is, is, is a good start. Unfortunately, in the current political uh, climate, dialogue nine times out of 10 is not possible. Obviously, in a lovely world with rainbows and happiness, we'd all sit around the table and sort out our problems, but it's just not realistic. And I think when you've got the terrorist organisation like Hezbollah endorsing Jeremy Corbyn, it's absolutely shocking. I mean, he even called them his friends. That approach to to Jeremy uh, to foreign policy by befriending enemies of this country is absolutely absurd and quite frankly disgusting. I think the Conservatives have normally got it right on foreign policy, and I think we are good at teaming up with our allies to keep those special relationships. And I think generally the Conservatives have a firm but fair foreign policy, and that's been shown throughout throughout history. Now, we're just coming to the end of the podcast now. Um, thank you very much for both of your time. It's been a very interesting debate and we've got through a lot of issues. Thank you. Um, hopefully the listeners have enjoyed it as well. Um, but we've just got one final question. Now, um, you're both prominent young people in politics and now it's coming up to Christmas, Christmas election. So in the spirit of Christmas, let's find, find, figure out what we've got in common and talk about what you have in common with each other and sort of say something nice about each other, I guess. Well, I, like I was saying before, I think I think the calling out of anti-Semitism that you've done is really commendable. I know that that could, you know, be a daunting thing. And I think the way that you've done that is really commendable. And this is something that I say about all Labour activists, young Labour activists. I just love, I'm, I really commend the way that Corbyn has managed to get so many young people engaged in politics. One massive po- positive. And I think it's just so important that 
all young people have an opinion, whatever opinion that may be. And I think with the likes of young Labour activists like yourself and young Conservative activists like myself, um, we can kind of work together to get more young people involved. And I think that's very important. And I think you've been really good at doing that. Thank you, Emily. That's that's very kind. And I've really enjoyed Merry this Christmas. debate. <laughs> Merry Christmas indeed. Thank you. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll be a socialist Christmas, but we'll wait and see. Um, but no, thank you. I've really enjoyed the discussion tonight. And I think, you know, young people should be involved in politics, whatever their political persuasion, including including the Conservative Party. Um, you know, I hope people listen to this debate tonight, listen to your opinions, whether they agree or disagree with your opinions or agree or strongly disagree with my opinions i hope they listen to this get on board and i hope people are registered to vote and of course we'll be voting on december the 12th and people you know not just voting in elections but getting involved in political parties mm. as well i think no doubt people listen to your point of view they will agree with you and you know it'd be interesting to see if more join the conservative party because of your platform or you know join the labor party because of the many activists who work in the Labour Party as well. But, uh, you know, I think it's been a fun debate. I think we should have more debates like this. Yeah. And um, I look forward to the future of yeah. the Debates podcast, indeed. And <laughs> on, on that point, actually, I think we have shown that you can have a, at times, intense political debate without yeah. name-calling, without, you know, hating each other. Like, you know what, I think... Oh, sorry, my microphone just fell out. You know what, I think you're a really nice guy and we might disagree completely politically and i really hope that corbyn doesn't win but you know what i think you're a nice guy thank you i think you're very nice as well and Thanks. i hope boris johnson gets battered at the ballot box on oh, december no. as well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. let's try and end on a positive note let's try and end on a positive note. well thank you for listening to the podcast uh, it's been a great debate we've very much enjoyed it we hope you've enjoyed listening to it if you would like thank to you. follow us on twitter you can do at the debated podcast you can like us on facebook you can subscribe on itunes spotify spreaker and YouTube, and if you would like to comment on this debate uh, or would like to appear on an episode of the podcast, you can email us at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you listen to the next one. <laughs>